0: Charlie Jane, do you remember the first time you encountered a zine or like the concept
1: of zines? I actually do. Uh, My best friend and I in high school used to hang out in this record store all the time and like paw Uh through the dollar bins for like random old vinyl. And like there was a whole rack of zines in there. And one day my best friend and I picked up this one zine that was just like somebody complaining about high school cliques and like people being jerks in high school. And it was like, it was by a young woman or like a teenage girl, I guess. And it was like this really kind of eloquent and like angry and kind of like, it was funny. Like, I think we thought it was funny, but we also were like, yeah, this is, we see ourselves in this. Like it was both, it was both. We thought it was like, we ironically liked it, but we actually also really liked it. (laughs)
2: Uh, That's very it was Gen
1: zine. X. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was very Gen X. And we like, we kind of kept it. I think my best friend still has the copy of that zine. And then about five years ago, that best friend from high school emailed me out of the blue and said, Hey, you know that zine that we read when we were in high school about like how much high school sucks. The author of that zine is now like a best-selling author of feminist books and like, you know, feminist books for teenagers. And it was like, and so this person's website i was like dang so actually this person can you can
0: you disclose who this is now i'm curious
1: so the zine was called oblivion zine Mm -hmm. and it was like great name and the person who created it is named laura barcella oh cool hi laura i hope if you're hearing this you're not (laughs) weirded out that i read your zine back (laughs) in high school um i really actually did love it and she's you know she's written a bunch of like feminist books for kids And that's so
0: awesome. Wow. That's amazing. I've never met her,
1: but she seems really cool.
0: Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a lot of definitions of, of what a zine is. And if you aren't familiar with the medium, zines are just self-published booklets that can be about anything you want. I like to tell people to think of them like homemade magazines because they're DIY, cheap to make, and easy to distribute. Zines still focus on being a form of expression rather than making a bunch of money, so they're very creative, messy, and cheap, but always free-spirited in nature. That's Brie, who is a zine influencer on mostly YouTube and TikTok. And her work is really awesome. And she's definitely Gen Z. And she sees zines as being really important to her life. Zines have also been super important to my life. When I was young in the 1990s, um, I helped start a zine called Bad Subjects. And we started out as this, we were a bunch of young, pissy grad students and we started this zine because we wanted to do Marxist critiques of pop culture, and we wanted to write something that would appeal to everyday people, not just, like, academics in the ivory tower. So in order to appeal to everyday people, we created this zine in 10-point Helvetica font. <laughs> it's, like, unreadable. The font
1: of the people. The, <laughs> the font, font of, the people. of the revolution. And
0: we, we Xeroxed it um, in the English department at UC Berkeley, and... Um, handed it out on campus, and pretty quickly, we heard from somebody at Carnegie Mellon University who'd somehow come across one of them somewhere, and he was like, hey, have you heard about this thing called the web? Um, we could, like, put this zine on the web, and people could look at it using this thing called a browser, and Whoa. we were like, I know, we were like, sure, we had already been on Gopher, um, so we knew that, you know, that, that the zine could live on the internet. Um, And so we posted on there. And uh, throughout pretty much the entire 90s, I was working on bad subjects. And those were my first publications. They were all pretty much online. And, you know, we were one of the first magazines online, but we didn't know what a zine was. And so I think my first experience with zines was um, kind of doing bad subjects and finding out that I was doing a zine. And it, it really did change my life.
1: Yeah, I had kind of a similar experience. My friends and I, actually the same friend in high school who we used to read that zine together, we did like a cooperative storytelling thing. It was sort of cooperative and sort of like competitive. It was sort (laughs) of like an RPG, but we would write like texts, long text sections of like what our characters were doing. Uh And in, you know, in the early 90s, we were still doing it. And uh, one of our friends from high school who at the time had you know, was in college or had just gotten out of college and was a sysadmin was like, Hey, you know, we could put this on the internet. And I was like, great. Are we going to have it accessible through Kermit or Grover or (laughs) one of the other? Like, you know, I don't even know. Like one of the like FTP tools and my Former high school friend was Fet. like, "Actually, there's this thing called the web, and we could put it on the web <laughs> and use HTTP instead of FTP." And I was like, "That Ooh. sounds that sounds made up. That sounds fake." Yeah. And so we had a website starting in like I don't even know. Like so, yeah. And it was it was really interesting because anybody could find it. Nobody did, but anybody could. You are listening
0: to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about science fiction, society, and weird old Xerox machines that live in the basement. I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who writes science fiction, and my latest novel is called The Terraformers.
1: I'm Charlie G. Anders. I'm a gadfly about town who also writes science fiction, and uh, my latest book is Promises Stronger Than Darkness. And you might be listening to this while it's a on a Kindle special thing for only three bucks. It's going to be for most of November. So this
0: week, we're going to talk about the past, present, and future of the humble zine. As Bree said earlier, zines are usually handmade DIY publications. They can be memoir, fiction, explainers, lists, art, apps, teaching guides, Marxist cultural criticism, whatever you want. That's the point of a zine. And we have got two guests here to talk about zines with us. Writer Lynn Perrell, who created the weird feminist zine Mystery Date in the 1990s, and artist Lawrence Lindell, whose recent graphic novel Black Word is about a group of young Black queer people in Oakland, California, trying to start a zine fest. We're gonna talk about the 100-year-long history of zines and where zines are going next. Also, on our mini-episode next week, we'll be answering your questions, if you're a Patreon supporter. And that means you asked us some questions in the Discord, and we're going to just tackle as many as we can. I've already seen a bunch of amazing questions in there, so I'm super excited to get to those.
1: And that reminds me. Hey, we've got a Patreon, and you can support us on Patreon, and it'll help us keep this podcast going and like spreading joy and positivity, and occasionally like hate and negativity out into the universe. And you know, (laughs) we don't don't do that. No, we say okay, joy and negativity, (laughs) joy and neg. Sometimes joyful negativity. Sometimes sometimes joy and positivity. Sometimes joy and negativity. It's one or the other. Fair enough. uh, Yeah, and you know, it really. It's not just a way of supporting us financially. It's a way of being part of our community in a more meaningful sense because we post extra content on Patreon that you can reply to, including mini episodes every other week. And we're in the Discord chatting with you about like what's going on in the world and what's going on in speculative fiction. It's it's a really special kind of part of our lives that you can be part of. Uh, And all you have to do is just give us a few bucks or whatever you can afford at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct.
0: bring on Lynn Peril, I wanted to start by talking a little bit about zine history. And we've already touched on this in a previous episode where we talked about Pulp Fiction with the librarian and collector Jess Nevins. Yeah. zine. Yeah. That was a great episode, by the way. Go back and and check that out because that's really the deep history of zines. Because zines go way back to the earliest days of science fiction fandom in the 1910s and 20s when they were called fanzines and they were full of critical commentary, reviews, short stories, other weird doodles, poems. And fans would send them back and forth in the mail to each other, uh, often as part of what were called amateur press associations.
1: Yeah, we owe so much of like the culture of science fiction and fantasy to these zines that were being created, including like that's how we got Kirk Spock fiction. That's how we got the concept of slash fiction and like fanfic about characters from like TV shows, movies, books, whatever, like hooking up and doing all the things that they couldn't do in the official version. (laughs) That started with zines and like we wouldn't be the same without it.
0: Yeah, and one of the most famous zinesters of the early 20th century was H.P. Lovecraft, who started out working in fanzines and amateur press associations and then became editor of Weird Tales, which was a pulp magazine, which was basically one step above fanzine. So the history of fanzines is let's say mixed diverse it's mixed it it's it contains amazing works by people of color and feminists trying to talk about experiences of people who weren't included in mainstream fiction and it includes people like hp lovecraft who explicitly used his fiction to advance a racist history of the united states and a racist image of the united states
1: yeah i mean i I still love zines, but yeah, it's not all—it's not all great. So there was also
0: a second wave of zine culture, which kind of starts in the late '70s with punk rock, but really catches fire in the '80s and '90s. And that's when desktop publishing and cheap copy machines made it really easy for artists and musicians to just make a zine at almost no cost. And there was this real, as I said, kind of punk DIY aesthetic to those old zines. One of the first big zines that I encountered in the San Francisco Bay Area was called Processed World. It made a big splash nationally, and it was made for office workers who hated capitalism. And one of the editors was Chris Carlson, who's still an activist in San Francisco today, and he urged other office workers to steal paper and copy machine time from the companies where they worked to make their zines.
1: Yeah, I, you know... That seems like the best use of office equipment and the best use of like office time. Honestly, <laughs> yes. like I don't know. I mean, that was we got point. to be part of we got to be part of some zinester communities. Like I've loved hanging out at the Zine Fest here in San Francisco, which some of our friends help to run now, and like Beantown Town Zine Town in Boston, we used to go to, and like mm-hmm. I love the fact that like zines are a way to kind of talk about like they they're often kind of in that space between comics and like personal journals and like just, you know, scrapbooks. They're a play- way to talk about stuff that's going on in your life, but they're also a way to tell stories that maybe you couldn't tell anywhere else. And often a zine belongs to a very specific community and it's a way to hash out stuff that affects that one community without necessarily inviting people from like the wider world to come in and like share their opinions the way would happen on, if you post on the internet. It's there, Even now, I feel like zines have a really special role.
0: I really agree. And I think part of it is that they can be anything you want. It's not like yeah. if you make a zine, someone's looking over your shoulder saying, it has to be 137 characters, or, you know, it has to be written in a certain language, or, like, you have to spell things correctly, or um, or you can't have lots of art, or you can't have pictures of naked people. You know, it's it's like your own thing. And it really, it's interesting to contrast it with social media, which I think we'll be talking about more in this episode, because it is the first glimmer of what we think of as social media now in that you could make something really personal that was your own and share it with people uh, with v- relatively little friction. But the difference is that with social media, as you said, the whole world could potentially look in. Whereas with zines, a lot of the time, it's just people asking you to mail it to them in the mail. And sure, mm-hmm. they can pass it around to a whole bunch of people and, you know... It could become something nationally famous, but it's a lot less likely. There's so much friction there. These are physical objects. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to reproduce them. All right. So here to tell us more about the second wave of zine culture, we are thrilled to have friend of the pod, Lynn Perrell, joining us. She is the creator of the zine Mystery Date and the author of several books, including Pink Think, which was partly based on Mystery Date, as well as College Girls, A History of Women in Higher Ed, and Swimming in the Pool: A History of Secretaries. Welcome to the show, Lynn. I'm so
3: happy to be here.
0: (laughs) Yes, we are so glad that you can untangle the mystery of the history of zines. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) I wonder if you could take us back to the 1990s, um, or perhaps even further, to describe the world of zines as it was when you first encountered it. Well, I discovered zines in the late 1970s as part
3: of the punk rock scene. I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee had a fabulously robust punk scene in the late 70s, in part due to the fact that the drinking age was uh, 18 at the time. <laughs> okay. So yeah, but you know, I didn't, I didn't, my friend and I didn't drink. We were very, we were straight edge before there was straight edge. Of course, all of that has changed now. But um, at the time <laughs> we didn't drink. We just wanted to go see all of these amazing bands that that came, came around because Milwaukee, Chicago, and Madison are basically like a 90, a, a triangle with sides of 90 miles. So mm-hmm. Bands would come and you know play all those three towns. So the first scenes that I really was aware of um, were the punk scenes. I read about the ones from from England, like Sniffin' Glue, and um, I had religiously read New York Rocker, which was more more of like um, a, a, an independently produced newsprint kind of publication. Mm-hmm. But then in Milwaukee, oh my gosh, we had we had a a, a one sheet. Xerox zine called Autonomy. We had, we had like a little digest zine called Crush on You. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a great title. I know, right? Um, and one of my favorites was a zine called See Here, which was, of course, eventually the same as the, um, the zine store in, in New York, although I don't think they had anything to do with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, See Here was, um, Written and uh, produced and illustrated by Glenn Reese, who was a and still is a Milwaukee area musician who was in the 80s um, psychedelic revival band Plastic Land, if you remember them. Mm -hmm. So this was his pre-Plastic Land uh, zine that just had his totally trippy black and white um, ink drawings in it as well. And it was great. So those were the first zines that I saw. And I really, really wanted to do a zine, but I was really too shy for a long time. I moved to San Francisco in 1985, and that's where I also became aware of many, many other types of music zines, because oh. when I, I came here with a boyfriend, and he worked at Subterranean Records oh. down on, on 16th oh my Street. God. Do you remember Subterranean? Yeah. yeah. Back. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, it was great. It was a great place to be. Steve Tupper, who ran Subterranean, was just, you know, just a a really great, interesting, grouchy, great guy to be around. Um, Oh, man. And so Subterranean just had, like, just boxes and boxes and boxes of of music zines from all over the United States. And again, I was just like, man, I really, really want to do a zine. They're so cool. And I just don't know what to do one about. Which then, probably late 80s, early 90s, I was in, there was that great bookstore that was on California, just down, um, just up from Polk Street, just up the hill from Polk Street, Mm -hmm. right by the 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 uh, five spice chicken place that is still there, <laughs> and that is where I found John Mars oh, anti sex yeah. tips for teen zine, and that just really that was like oh my god I uh, this is what I want to do I want to do something like this I, I I I I this is great I can do this this is going to be awesome. But I still didn't exactly know what to do. But just the whole idea of of these great old um out-of-touch
0: historical sex guides for teens was like, oh, that really floated my boat. <laughs> so was that before he was doing Murder Can Be Fun? It was
3: like a it was like a one-off special edition. Like Murder Can Be Fun was already in existence, uh-huh. but I didn't I didn't know about it yet because the first thing that I saw. In fact, I bet you they had actual copies of Murder Can Be Fun there uh-huh.
0: on the same shelf, but I just went, no, this is for me. <laughs> That's so awesome. For, for listeners who aren't aware, Murder Can Be Fun was John Mars zine that was you know quite well-known in the 90s. Still well-known among discerning murder, murder yeah. fans.
1: <laughs> so, Lynn, can you tell us more about Mystery Date and what led you to create that, that zine, and who, who did you think of as your audience for that zine?
3: So, finally, I wound up getting, um, I finally, finally got a copy of the mystery date game, which I had wanted ever since I was a little kid. And I was like, great, this is it. This is what I'm going to write about. This is what my zine is going to be called. And I just always imagined that my, my audience was Uh, You know, I always write the stuff that I want to read, so I guess I always thought of my audience as being somebody like myself Mm -hmm. who had grown up with these, like, really antiquated ideas about gender and femininity and went to their home ec class when there was still sex segregated home ec classes. Like mine was, I believe, like the last year that my suburban Wisconsin junior high school did sex segregated shop and home ec, and who just you know thought it was a a load of BS and just really wanted to dig down into that and laugh
0: at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, feminist satire.
3: Yeah, a feminist. You know, feminist history and pop culture history with a feminist bent. Yeah.
0: And so what was the meaning of Mystery Date when you finally played the game? Like, is that was that your first issue? Was like just talking about the game? It was pretty much that that was like the
3: main, the main um essay in the first issue. And I think we also, I think I also, and when I say we, I mean I, because it was always a I was except for one issue when I had a couple of other things from a couple of other people, it was always just me. I wrote wrote it. Illustrated it you know with collaged it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was all me. It was so amazing to have the game and to actually like look at it and it was all about like all of this like intense gender training for young girls it was that that for example the age range like the box uh the game box Mm -hmm. always would have like you know these are the ages that we think should be playing this game recommended ages Uh, started at like age six so you know here they were talking about like you know very intense female gender roles of of Dating and ultimately marriage and breeding, because of course that's what dating—you know—heterosexual, rigidly heterosexual dating is about breeding, uh, in many cases, Mm -hmm. Um, or certainly back back in the you know the mid twentieth century was you know was it Adrian Rich came up with the the term compulsory heterosexuality? I mean these are all about compulsory heterosexuality being introduced to really young kids. So I, I thought that was completely fascinating and, um, you know, really made me think about um, gender roles and, and all of that stuff in a way that I hadn't before.
1: So what can you tell us about the zine scene of the 1990s? What was it like? And were there like specific zines that you felt really defined that era?
3: Well, uh, we've already talked about murder can be fun because I I feel like that is definitely one of the big zines of the era and it Hell certainly yeah. meant a yeah. lot to me. me yeah. Too. Um yeah, and Thrift Score, Elhoff's Thrift Score, I think was a big one. Um Beer Frame by Paul Lucas. Um Bitch, which was just a little zine when when they started out, was another incredibly important one. Um and I, I, yeah, I feel like those, like, really defined, are, are really big ones from the era. I also feel like there were just a ton of really little one-offs mm-hmm. that one of the great things, and speaking about community, one of the great things was, like, once you had your your P.O. box up and running, you could just wind up with all of these great zines landing in your box, and you would, you know, trade a copy of your zine for them. And so I feel like there were, like, just a ton of little one-offs, and as always, I think the best scenes were always ones that introduced you to a subject that you had no idea about or no interest in. And all of a sudden by the time you got done reading it, you were just like, oh, this is completely fascinating. I love this. I'm I still may not want to, you know partake of this, you know activity or you know, whatever it was about, but it, just to like read about something that really drew you in, I thought was great. Those were always always my favorites.
0: I was wondering, um, you mentioned Beer Frame and Thrift Score, and I was thinking of a few others, like Comet Bus was another one that was oh, yeah. also a local mm-hmm. um, uh, zinester. Was there something that those zines had in common with each other that you thought made them so definitive? Like, was it just the the focus in on one topic or what? Well, oh, I think... I think- I think it was the personality
3: of the the writers really came through and again it was being interested in a in a particular subject and really writing about it in a way that was accessible and entertaining is all get out. So I think that's what they for me certainly I think that's what they have in common for me you know Mm -hmm. it was just again if you you know maybe you didn't care anything about the brannock device speaking of like beer frames one of beer frames famous issues was where paul lucas did a deep dive on the the metal device that they do they still measure your feet in shoe stores (laughs) i'm so used to like you know oh uh, god that weird metal slider
1: thing god Yeah. yeah That yeah was, there's so a strike behind that. Yeah.
3: Yeah, oh that's God. a Brannock. that is a Brannock device. <laughs> so
1: he like he a got, deep got you got busy. So,
3: right? So like who and and you're just like well, that's so interesting. I never thought about that. I never thought about it that way. Or I who knew it had a name? Yeah. You know, it was that slider thing. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, again, I think that's where, I think that's, for me, that's what made these zines stand out and why I think of the them as being the ones
0: that were like, you know, really described that era to me. So I wanted to ask you one final question before we let you go, which is... Um about how I first heard of you, <laughs> which is because for zinesters, this was a big deal. Like V. Vale, who ran research publications, did two collections of zines, zines volume one and two, and you were on the cover. And I I was like, who is this cool person? And like, why are they on the <laughs> cover? And so how did that come about? Like, how did you become like the face of zines on this incredibly important collection? Well,
3: it started out because I'm in incredibly strange music. Yeah, so oh, I met I met Vale. Okay. Uh, I, I, oh my God, I started reading um, research back back in Milwaukee with the Industrial Culture Handbook, and I just thought Vale like must be the coolest person on the face of the mm-hmm. earth, which of course he True, is. Yeah. Um, and then I I met him first, although it was not like a met and remembered each other or anything like that, um, I used to work at um, a gallery called San Francisco Art Space mm-hmm. in the 90s, and we did a survival research Laboratories show. Okay. And and um, Vale was down for that, and that's the first time I met him. But I did not actually meet him to become friends with him um, until, you know, 92-ish, I think. And then, um, yeah, I... I don't even remember how he found out that I was a, you know, a record collector and into into incredibly strange music. But I wound up being in that. And I think at that point in time, I I actually talk about wanting to do a zine. Mm-hmm. And maybe I have just started doing Mystery Date. I can't remember. But he knew that I did a zine. And then to be honest, it was just, I was as shocked by it <laughs> as anything. I was like, what? Beyond the cover. Oh, my God. Yes, (laughs) of course. Of course. Of course. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, he was he knew me. uh, I had already been interviewed by him. And I think that made it kind of kind of an easy, an easy choice in the sense that, you know, I was already there. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah. yeah. And research. Yeah.
0: Research publications was an interesting phenomenon where it was kind of a zine and kind of a book and kind of self-published and kind of not. And like so yeah. yeah that was a really and so yeah it sounds like music is what really brought you into this on like every it did level. it did cool. it, on every level and i i didn't even think about that until you said it but yeah that's true
1: yeah
0: cool well thank you so much for uh joining us
1: yeah and thank you for
0: telling us wait, all wait, this that's history a better, that's a better heart yeah that's yeah <laughs> we're making, for those who cannot see what we're doing, we're all making little heart-shaped hands into the Zoom. Mine mine just looked like a potato. I mean, um... potato is love, all right? Especially if you're from the Midwest. Food is love, yeah. Yeah. Mine also looks sort of potato. Charlie's is the best heart so far. So I know yeah. she's really good at it. So <laughs> nice job. Charlie. I know. All right. Well, Lynn, yeah. thank you so much for joining thank us. Thank you. And um, where can people. Oh, my pleasure. Is there any place where you want to point people to find your work online?
3: Um, probably highlowbrow.com has like the most of it. Uh, the most recent. Um, yeah. Oh. Yeah. All right.
0: So check yeah. out Lynn's. Send them there. Call there. And of course, you can pick up her books uh, anywhere where fine books are sold. Hell yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> All right. Coming up next, we have artist Lawrence Lindell, whose new graphic novel, Black Word, has us both completely obsessed. Lawrence Lindell is the author of Black Word, a new graphic novel about a group of young queer Black people in Oakland who organize a Black zine fest. Lawrence is also an artist, a musician, a cartoonist for The New Yorker, and they run the small press La Neja House with their spouse, the cartoonist Brina Nunez. Welcome to the show, Lawrence.
2: Hi, uh, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us. So I want to dive right into Blackboard, which completely blew me away. I got it in email and I started reading and I just basically couldn't stop until I was done and I was laughing and crying and feeling cozy. And I just loved these characters so much and I was really invested in their journey to find community. So I wonder if you could start by talking about the process of coming up with these characters who we know by the name of The Section because that's what they call their friend group online.
2: Yeah, um, it started as a webcomic called The Section. So that's where the name comes from. Uh-huh. Uh, and then we changed it to Blackboard because they're like, uh, I don't think the section is going to be good for marketing. So that's what happened.
0: <laughs> Which actually we see the characters kind of trying to come up with the name Blackboard in the comics. So that's kind of cool.
2: And yeah, I just based it off of um, like my own community who I live around. So a lot of the characters are based on my spouse and friends and people that I hang around. Uh, Lika was based on me originally. Um, the original character design is much closer to how I look. And then I kind of changed her, but I was trying to explore and express some gender things I kind of deal with. um, And it felt safer to do that on the page than in real life, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of how that character came about. Um, Yeah.
1: That's awesome. So what made you decide to have the the way that they find community and come together be a zine fest as opposed to like, any of the other things that they could have been doing
2: it's funny because that was the exact question uh my editor tracy asked. like why why zine fest it could be anything um and for me it couldn't have been anything because zine fest is kind of where my community comes like i make comics but my entry point into comics starts with zine fest so most of the people i know that are cartoonists are that make comics i met them through like zine fest or organizing before like comics is the extra part of it. So I was like, it's the one place I know personally that uh, gathers so many different kinds of people with a similar intention. Um, and so I was like, I can't just make it a comics fest because comics fest are very much just strictly comics only. And zine fest is like, oh, I can get punk zines. I can get sci-fi zines. I can get how to organize against police. And you know, it's all in one, mm-hmm. one space. So that's what I figured would be the perfect combination.
0: Is there a zine fest that you went to that was like your home base?
2: Uh yeah, L.A. for me. Um, I'm from Compton, L.A., um, mm-hmm. but also San Francisco. That's where I met my spouse. Uh, San Francisco and Berkeley. But um,
1: oh, yay! Yeah. Our friends who helped organize the San Francisco Zine Fest will be so freaking happy to hear that.
2: Yeah, that that was a yeah that was a big one for me too.
1: But. Yeah. So the. The vibe of black
0: Word really made me think about blurds or black nerds and the rise of black nerd culture generally over the past couple of decades. And I wonder if you could talk about that. Like, first of all, do you think there actually has been a rise of the blurds? And do you see work like black Word fitting into that?
2: Yeah, I guess there's a rise in art. I guess it's more uh, visible now, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, obviously, I always. most things always exist. <laughs> And then it kind of gets, um, like, people kind of get to see it, especially now because of the internet. But, I, yeah, I think, like, that's always existed. I don't know if Blackbird fits there. I would love to think so. But because it's so heavily focused in um, kind of, like, fandom and a specific kind of comics, sometimes they don't, in my experience, haven't always been receptive to more, like, cartoony or comic strips or like uh if i'm not fitting a certain aesthetic it's like uh I, I don't know about that so like that's what i struggle with sometimes um knowing if i do like obviously i fit into that there's no i'm black and i, I like <laughs> comics <laughs> and things like that but it's just like knowing knowing that sometimes there is an aesthetic associated with it that um my aesthetic doesn't always fit so i don't know where my place and all that is
0: can you, can you say more about that? Like, what it what is the aesthetic that you think um, is, like, the blurred aesthetic that, like, a more cartoony graphic novel doesn't fit into?
2: Yeah, it's weird because it's, like, obviously it fits, but it doesn't. So, like, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: when I used to go to <laughs> conventions early on, uh, they would kind of pick up my work and be like, oh, there's this kid stuff. It's, like, cartoons. Like, you know, we're looking uh-huh. for the comic books of, like, You know, we want to see this good depiction Uh, of blackness and it's like, well, this is a a type of blackness that exists that I'm trying to depict. Um,
1: Like you mean like uh, superhero comics or like?
2: Like kind of more indie, like like image, I guess, would be the closest I could, yeah. Like Like creator-driven comics. Yeah, so like in a certain aesthetic too, it's like, yeah, I know how to draw, but this is what I like to draw. (laughs) And it doesn't Mm -hmm. need to be like so realistic all the time and sometimes I get it. Our history here in the States is black people, particularly being caricatured, It's like uh it's always on my mind of like I don't ever want to be like I don't want my characters to come across as like, you know, buffoons and things like that. But it's like mm-hmm. I'm very deliberate in what I do. And I hate that it's automatically written off as like, oh we don't we don't do caricature type stuff. You know, we want more oh. serious so it's like a, a weird balance of being this artist of who has all these years of studying and who thinks I'm being intentional and then to meet people and like, no, nah, we don't like that type of stuff.
0: Yeah, because it just could too easily be mistaken for a
1: stereotype. Yeah, it's sort of a weird form of almost respectability politics, I guess.
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So do you think black and queer nerds have like changed nerd mainstream nerd culture? And if so, like how do you feel like that's happened?
2: Uh i I'd say so. I mean, I, I feel like Black and queer people change culture all the time, whether uh, they get the yeah. credit or not uh, is just a fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say so, because I feel like there's a lot of things that are queer <laughs> that people don't know off the bat. Like it's kind of not snuck in there, but it's written from a perspective of a queer person that Until someone finds out it's queer, like, oh, we don't like that. And it's like, oh, but it was queer all along. Like, What are you talking about? Um, (laughs) And so in that way, I feel like definitely like it's like these little (laughs) it's like what I feel like what they feel like is the gay agenda. It's like, oh, everything's being made gay now. It's like, no, it was gay all along. You just didn't know. And now that you know, it's like you have a problem with it. But oh, well, you'll get over it or you won't. So I feel like (laughs) like, yeah, queer people, black people. Uh especially me being in the States, like we shape culture here no matter what it is. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like it's undeniable, even if it's not intentional. I feel like it's just a part of what happens.
0: I was just going to ask if you have like a specific example or a set of examples in the back of your mind when you're thinking about people saying like, oh, this is all of a sudden queer. And you're like, no, it was always queer. Is there something that stands out to you?
2: I think in mainstream more recently is like the Matrix movies. Um, (laughs) Oh,
1: yeah, for sure.
2: Like even myself as someone who was like um, when I was watching, I definitely was not out or even thought to explore any of the queerness that I'm coming to terms with like later in life. But then you look back and you're like, oh, yeah, (laughs) like, oh, okay. So I think there's so many things like that where it's like it goes over everyone's head that's not in the know especially if you haven't started exploring like me like I just wouldn't know and then when you know you're like oh that's that's kind of cool <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so that's what I think about like things like that where it's like oh this is so obvious but at the time to me it wasn't obvious and it's like kudos to them maybe I don't even know if it was obvious to the people making it or if it was just coming through them like subconsciously yeah
0: yeah I I think that that's A good question, because I I do think the Wachowskis have talked about how it was kind of they they were also expressing something unconscious. And so, yeah. And I think that's how a lot of queer culture works oftentimes is there's there's sort of two levels. There's like the do you know what's going on if you're queer level? And then there's like, hey, there's bullet time and like (laughs) cool like jackets and like racing around. And that's that's good, too. Like, I love that. So you can you can appreciate it on both levels. So I also wanted to talk about um going back to the characters in Blackboard. I wanted to um talk about Mr. Marcus, who's such a yeah. cool, pivotal character. He owns the Books and Thangs bookstore, um, and which made me think of Marcus Books in Oakland and Sister Sci-Fi in Oakland, which are two great black-owned bookstores, one of which totally specializes in sci-fi and um and currently doesn't have a real bricks and mortar presence, but is there online. Um so I'm wondering. What does it mean to have activism and community start in a bookstore as opposed to, say, on the street or in a church or in some other kind of community space?
2: Yeah. Uh, funny thing is the character is named after Marcus Books. and so I kind of wondered that. Yeah. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah that's really cool.
2: Um, I don't know if I thought about it. I think I was thinking about spaces that um, exist like that, like bookstores where it's kind of... Um, I don't know about anymore that everything's been weird since the pandemic but where you could yeah. just go and kind of uh explore all these things and I feel like bookstores are very good at some of them are very good at that like creating a space where youth uh even libraries too I thought about having a library because they focus on that even more but where bookstores are like kind of like a they're like a part of the community that's left out if you will also because not everyone has an independent bookstore. Like when I was growing up, I had to go to Barnes and Nobles or Borders and things like that. Um, okay. But I remember you could sit in there and read books all the time. So,
1: yeah, that's like one of the things that's amazing about bookstores is that you can kind of hang out and like just kind of be there with the books and with your friends. And it's like a really cool thing in the community.
2: Yeah. And I think of his characters like all of the elders I kind of had, um, even if they didn't understand whatever I was into, they didn't kind of uh, throw me away. They kind of just like, oh, well, let's let's let him explore that type of thing. And so that's how I view Mr. Marcus. Uh, Yeah, nice.
1: What kind
0: of exploration do you think is possible in a bookstore that isn't in um, like another kind of space?
2: I I feel like it's similar to Zinefest. Like there's so many options, even Mm -hmm. bookstores that specialize in stuff. Yes, it might be one specific uh, genre, which is kind of rare, but it happens. Uh, But it'll be things that you didn't even know exist within that genre. And that's why I like bookstores. You're like, like you're walking, be like, oh shit, what? This can be this? And and I don't know. I feel like, especially bookstores, because it's such an investment for them, they're very um, not selective, but they want to put like the quote unquote good shit or things they value in their store as well. And yeah, I don't know. I found so many things in bookshops, as long as the, the shop owner is not snobby, but that they're like, oh, you should check this out. You like this? Maybe check this. And then you're like, oh, shit, I know this existed. And so I feel like similar to Zinefest, like it, you can explore more than just uh, what you're used to.
1: Yeah, totally. So, I mean, we were talking before about how Zines were like a huge part of our lives in the back in the day in the eighties and nineties. But you know, zines are kind of coming back again. And what do you think zines mean now compared to what they meant like, you know, 30, 40 years ago? And how do you see your work fitting into this long tradition of like science fiction fanzines that go back like a hundred years?
2: Yeah, I was thinking about that too. Because uh, it's weird I make comics, but my entry point to zines, like I didn't learn about fanzines until after I was reading like punk zines, and you know what I mean. Like it mm-hmm. was like my entry point is definitely from hardcore and like punk rock, and then um, a lot of political like pamphlets on like don't talk to the police or here's what you do if you like you know that type of thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. um, when when I found out about fanzines, I was like, oh shit! <laughs> like it it expanded what I thought zines were even more. And then you dig into mini comics, which is like, oh what? And then you get into portrait zines and then photo zines. And I feel like, um, I don't feel like there's anything, I'm not going to say it's not new, but I feel like it's just like, uh, it's reviving what what already came before. And it's a little, zines are always supposed to be accessible, but I feel like they're even more accessible now because of the fact of the internet, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, and uh, there's a lot of people Doing like zine archives and history and like workshops and panels. So there's like mm-hmm. this, um, you don't have to be the cool kid to know about zine fest type of thing. Like there's more access to it, even though it's supposed to be accessible, but we we know like sometimes <laughs> things that are accessible, it depends on who you are and who you have proximity to. Um but yeah, I don't I don't know basically all that rambling is to say, I don't know. (laughs) Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure it out so that you guys have a good show. Um,
0: (laughs) Are you working on anything next?
2: Yeah. I have a book, a middle grade graphic novel that I technically did before the drawn and quarterly one that comes out next year, but Mm -hmm. I'm current currently uh, working on my second novel with drawn and quarterly. Um, It's more adult. I mean, Blackbird wasn't. It's not like <laughs> it's marketed as white, but it really was just like I'm making a comic for everybody or whoever mm-hmm. wants to read it. But this one is specifically, like adult memoir comic. Cool. Uh, and so it deals with uh, me coming home from England to Compton, and then kind of this mental health uh, break I had because uh, I have bipolar and uh, PTSD, um, and so I kind of dive into like what that was like um, and it talks about zines and like me doing zine fest and traveling and all that stuff. So.
0: Cool. So we can expect um, more community through zines coming from you soon. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Lawrence. Um, the book again is Blackword, and people can find that anywhere that fine books are sold. And where else can people follow your work online?
2: Um just like uh lawrence Uh most of my social media is private because I feel like relatable. I don't know, yeah, it just yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm trying to step away from that and just focus on like uh you know family and making work that I enjoy.
1: Awesome. Well thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Wow, that was so interesting. I loved hearing the really different stories of how Lynn and Lawrence found their way into the world of zines. And it made me think that, like, we're in this moment right now where there's a resurgence of interest in zines. And that's maybe because we're in kind of this media crisis where, you know, we're not really sure where to go for our social media. We're not really sure where to go to get good information or to find good music or like find other people and zines just feel right somehow they feel really tangible and authentic not algorithmic and corporate i don't know what do you think
1: i think that's absolutely right and i think that you know there's a bunch of reasons why maybe zines were less of a big deal like for a while there but part of it was that the internet was supplying that need to have like very personal very weird kind of like non you know monetizable Personal expression that was just like, yeah. here's some weird stuff, and like, you know, you and I both used to go to w- the Webzine Fest in San Francisco back in the 2000s, where it was like, yeah, yeah, they were zinesters, but they were zinesters on the web, the web,
0: and a lot of them were early bloggers, you know, and like live journal people.
1: Yeah, and it was like a mixture of like bloggers, live journal people, and people who would do just like a website of nothing but like naked German parachuters like they'd find tons of pictures of (laughs) naked Germans parachuting and that would be the entire web scene and it'd be just like here's every picture I could find of this weird thing and that was the kind of stuff that I was like oh yeah okay zine culture is alive and well on the internet and we don't need to necessarily spend all that time photocopying and pasting and stuff because it's on the internet there's webzines I still have my webzine 2000 t-shirt somewhere it doesn't fit anymore but I still have it and yeah uh, but I feel like now the internet has gotten more corporate and has gotten more kind of all the stuff that zines were reacting against and that web zines were reacting against and the web is gone. And so, yeah, I think that uh, we have to turn back to zines. Yeah, it's funny because what Lynn
0: was saying was that for her, zines had been this source of like weird information, like you said, like you could just kind of go on the internet and replace that really easily. Like, by finding the naked German parachutists, or sort of, <laughs> like, right. you know, or the like the website that's entirely devoted to like how to take care of African daisies or something like that. Yeah. But what Lawrence said was that his early experience of zines was a lot of political stuff and mm-hmm. like, you know, how to deal with the police if you're black. And like, that's also the kind of information that people were trading actually a lot on Twitter and other spaces online and like. Black Twitter was like almost performing that role that those zines he described had once performed. But now all of that stuff is just buried under like propaganda and yeah. weaponized information. And so you can't be sure that you're getting something real and authentic from a member of your community. But with the zine,
1: it feels mm-hmm. like you are. Yeah, it feels more personal and you can me- often meet the person who made the zine if you go to a zine fest, they're sitting there at a table, mm-hmm. they've got their zines, you can actually be like, hi, you're a real human. Okay, cool. This scene looks cool. And you know, I feel like now I wouldn't want to let my freak flag fly on social media at yeah. all because I would just get dogpiled by weirdos and like, you know, I'm a weirdo, and but box. I'm talking about weirdos who are just like there to harass you. And like, mm-hmm. I might be like, here's all my weird thoughts about lasagna. And people might be like, <laughs> I'm going to kill you because your thoughts about lasagna are not the approved thoughts about lasagna or only Garfield. Or is just because like you're lasagna, a trans or...
0: person who exactly. cares about lasagna. You know, I'm like it doesn't person, even matter.
1: So I'm making lasagna trans. And like I gotta say actually that <laughs> Ooh, uh, I love trans lasagna, Charlie. Thank you. I mean it is the best <laughs> I'm kind. waiting we, for your trans lasagna zine. We we use the correct amount of garlic is all I'm gonna say. <laughs> the correct amount, which is a lot. Um <laughs> yes. But for yeah. Sure. Um but the thing I was gonna say is that I did have a moment a few weeks ago where I was like seriously thinking about like, should I start making a print, a paper zine again? Or really for the first time, because I never really made, I made like a couple of Doctor Who fanzines back in the day, but I never really was like a zine star. Um, uh-huh. So I was thinking, thinking about this because. I've, you know, people who read my newsletter all know I've been really worried about some of the legislation coming down the pike, like the Kids Online Safety Act, that would yeah. drastically restrict what we could say on the internet and might shut down a lot of our online ways of communicating. And I'm like, well, you know, I guess if that happens, one thing I could do is just start making a paper zine, and anybody who wants it, I'll just send it to them and maybe raise money for it online, but the content won't be online, because I just think, you know, there are there are things in motion right now that if they succeed could make the internet even worse than it is now. And I think that that would be a boon to zines and a bane to those of us who want to get anything useful on the internet.
0: Yeah. And maybe a boon to the post office.
1: <laughs> we'll be I mean, ma- yeah. mailing this
0: stuff around. Um, True. Maybe we'll bring back fax machines. That would be you oh know, another God. way to go. <laughs> yeah, Fax
1: machines, man. Yeah.
0: Or just or maybe people will just be emailing PDFs to each other or something like that. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, that might be the future direction of zines is a way that we can bring back the good parts of the Internet without uh, all of that surveillance and uh, negativity and automated uh, or or what the experts call coordinated inauthentic behavior, uh, which is basically just a fancy way of saying bots spewing propaganda.
1: Actually I the, have to say coordinated inauthentic behavior would be a great title for a zine.
0: Yeah. I I know, I'm, I'm buying that
1: zine right now. Go forth I,
0: and make that zine. Somebody make so, that zine and send
1: it to us, please.
0: All right. Well, thank you very much for listening to another episode of Our Opinions Are Correct. Woo. Remember that you can find us on Mastodon, on Patreon, and on Instagram if you'd and like on to Blue follow Sky. along. And on Blue Sky Now. Now on Blue Sky. Thank you so much to Veronica Simonetti, our intrepid producer. And thanks to Chris Palmer and Katya Lopez Nichols for the music. And we will talk to you later. If you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord and you'll hear us in your ears with our mini episode next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>